Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. I am your NBN host, Lavinia Stan. We are talking today with Dr. Igor Scheuker-Brod, an assistant professor of political philosophy at St. Francis Xavier University in Nova Scotia, Canada. Igor was born in Tajikistan during Soviet times, but left that country when he was just three years old in the summer of 1991, right during the KGB putsch. I know that Igor remembers quite vividly his trip on the plane out of the Soviet Union, dismantled later that same year. After some time spent in Israel, his parents decided to emigrate to Canada, and this is how he arrived in this country. Igor obtained his PhD degree at the University of Toronto in 2018 with a dissertation that won the uh, Stephen E. Bronner Dissertation Award from the American Political Science Association for its, uh, and I quote here, commitment to use scholarship in the struggle for a better world. Prior to his appointment at uh, St. Francis Xavier University in Canada, Igor taught at Dalhousie University and the University of Toronto. The author of several scholarly articles, we are talking today with Igor as author of Revisiting Marx's Critique of Liberalism, Rethinking Justice, Legality and Rights, a book published in 2019 with Paul Grave Macmillan. Igor, thank you for accepting this interview. Thank you very much for having me. It's both an honor and a pleasure. Igor, first of all, I have to ask, how do you pronounce correctly your family name? I suppose it would be Shoikidbrod. Okay. okay, thank you very much. Now, turning to your book, what motivated you to write it? How closely does it follow your doctoral dissertation? Well, that's a very good question. And in a sense, I mean, those two questions and the answers to them are connected. In many respects, I was motivated to write this book um, in preparation for my doctoral thesis. And I was challenged by some of my former professors, professors primarily in the history of political thought, political theorists, uh, who were really curious about my interest in Marxist social and political thought, but didn't understand what appeal Marx uh, would have in the 21st century. And I was challenged by this challenge. Uh, And at one point, there was a professor who, incidentally, was teaching in the law faculty at the University of Toronto. And I was taking a course with him. Uh, He was a political theorist. And the course was being taught on the political philosophy of Hegel, who, of course, had a profound influence on Marx's social and political thought. And, you know, usually what ends up happening is, much like all Hegelian scholarship, it gets divided into the right and the left, as many other political theory ideologists tend to get divided. And I was coming uh, to to Hegel through the left, and its chief spokesperson uh, historically was, of course, Marx uh, and the so-called young or left Hegelians. And so the professor, his name is Alan Brudner, 
he stopped for a moment and said, Igor, you know, the, it's great that you're interested in kind of left Hegelianism, but don't you want to have rights? <laughs> because, you know, you could have that interest, scholarly interest in Marx and so on, but don't you want to have rights? And, you know, initially I thought, well, what's the problem? Why can't you be interested in Marx? And also... I uh, wanted to have rights. I thought that those two objectives were no, no, in no sense at loggerheads or in conflict. But at the time, I didn't have the evidence, the interpretive evidence to marshal, you know, uh, the conclusion. And so the dissertation was an attempt to respond to that challenge. And it's a challenge, I think, that is uh, widely shared and isn't uh, confined to academia in the sense that it is taken for granted or has been for a very long time that Marx's social and political theory and what became Marxism is incompatible with uh, a commitment to the rule of law, to legality, to a sense of justice, and ultimately to the institution or device of rights. And so that's what ended up inspiring me, motivating me to pursue the dissertation which really closely tracks uh, the book with some uh, differences. Uh, certainly the concluding chapter and the penultimate chapter were quite different from the dissertation. Um, thank you very much. Uh, this is interesting, uh, the way you responded, because it ties into my second question. For many people, Marx remains associated with one of the cruelest regimes in recent history which became reality behind the Iron Curtain in Central and Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. I'm coming from one of that countries. Yeah. So the failure of those regimes to protect basic rights and bring living standards to Western levels discredited Marxism in the eyes of many. So I have to ask you, why Marx and why now? Why leftism? Right. Very good question. I suppose it also tells me that I didn't answer the first question entirely or in its entirety. So it was a partial response, now that I think of it, in large part because there's also this biographical introduction, the very generous one that you provided at the outset of our discussion here, that I think it also kind of hovered over me, right? Because I, too, am a very young, I would say, product of that uh, uh Eastern Socialist Bloc, however you want to term it. And it's as though that too hovers over you, right? And uh, you can't escape it because you're a product of it, maybe a younger product of it. Obviously, there's a bit of a generational difference between the two of us. Uh, but I think that too factored into why I was interested in these questions, because I'm of the view, uh, I'll try to answer <laughs> this very complex and I think important question in three or four parts. The first is the autobiographical. I think it's undeniable that, uh, you know, we come from a certain place. There's no view out of nowhere. And we're shaped by that those experiences. Um, so I certainly think that that factored in, maybe not most explicitly when I was thinking about the dissertation topic, but it certainly motivated me to think very carefully about these questions at the normative level. Why does this matter? What is the practical political purchase? But so, I suppose... So your, your, uh, to tell our listeners, uh, your childhood in Tajikistan, this is that's what... Right. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's right. Just to be more explicit that I was born in Tajikistan when it was still part of the Soviet Union, right? One of the so-called republics. And uh, it's also important to note that we left, my family had uh, immigrated to Israel 
um, during a situation where things were really unclear, you know, in terms of the future. And what we did find out after the fact, very sadly, very tragically, is that a brutal civil war followed uh, the collapse of the USSR. Uh, and it, it was, you know, really heavily felt by people on the ground in Tajikistan. So in many instances, right, the collapse of communism for certain virtues, Soviet-style communism, also led to a lot of, you know, civil strife and violence, in this case, a, a civil war. So that, I think it's important to not also, you know, hovered in the background when I was thinking about these issues. And perhaps, especially the, the point about Marx's critique of liberalism, and the need to return to the question of where he stood, uh, you know, vis-a-vis liberalism, uh, questions of justice, legality, and rights. But to answer your question, to answer your question, I think uh, it's important to approach it maybe in, in at least two ways. The first is comparative, and the second is normative. And the normative is always more important for me than the comparative. But Comparative because it provides us with a more kind of impartial or more balanced position. Why do I say this? I say this because we have to think of Marx, right, and Marxism, right, ultimately leading to an ism. What is an ism? Particular worldview or an ideology. And we can also compare it to other isms, very important isms. And the, the ones that come to mind for me as someone who, you know, studies the history of political thought and tries to get students interested in the history of ideas, right? Uh, often uh, dead white men, but not always. Uh, you could think of, for example, Christianity, right? And ism, particularly in, the, in its political form as Catholicism, which became universal, right? And, and gained political force. The second one, which I'm interested in, liberalism, right? Another ism committed to the freedom and moral worth of individuals as bearers of rights, and, of course, there's also Marxism, which is, I guess, the subject matter here. In all instances, what I would argue is all of these isms have a counter-history. I take this concept of counter-history from another Marxian intellectual historian by the name of Domenico Lazzardo. He wrote this book, quite influential, called Liberalism, a Counter-History. Now, if we think of counter-history, it's the history that doesn't get told. It's the history that isn't in rosy colors. And my argument is that each of these isms that I've brought uh, to our attention right, contains a counter-history of violence, of dispossession, of genocide, which is not to justify any of them or any of these actions. So if we think of you know, Christianity, right, there's the Inquisition, many other terrible episodes of missionaries and so on and so forth. In the case of liberalism, right, the enduring legacy of colonialism and various forms of dispossession, also very cruel. And, of course, the reality of actually existing socialism, state socialism, Marxism in practice, as it's often called, also a very cruel, a brutal history. And I think the normative side, the normative side, as opposed to the comparative one that I just outlined, is what does it mean to be someone who takes seriously these isms or those who inspired these isms, right, today, right? And part of that answer, for me anyway, is to confront the counter-history of Marxism, including the crimes and the repressions and the violence that you've described. And I think that applies to anyone who would you know, identify, for example, as a Christian, the teaching of Christ. Certainly not all of Christ's teachings right, are to be associated with the Inquisition. Right? Certainly not all forms of liberal colonialism right, uh, exhaust liberalism. And, and it's more, how shall we put it, 
its more virtuous teachings. And the same, I would argue, should apply to anyone who takes seriously Marxist teachings, right, before it became a state ideology, uh, and to account for the fact that some of those teachings, right, uh, inspired regimes uh, that bore Marx's name, right, and committed uh, terrible atrocities and terrible crimes. So rather than apologizing for those, I think we have to, those who identify as Marxists today or interested in taking Marxist thought seriously, must, you know, confront this head on and not to pretend that it wasn't, you know, or has nothing to do with it, but at the same time to note that it is indeed a history, where the history can change, right? But to be aware of the burden of the past, I think it normatively is very important, not only for those who identify with Marx and Marxism, but for those who identify with isms that are still very much alive and influential, perhaps liberalism and Christianity more so than Marxism. And these uh, convictions of yours uh, led you uh, later on to write uh, uh, these books on uh, Marx. Uh, can you tell us, can you tell the listeners what is the, the main argument in this book? Yeah, so I suppose one way of approaching this uh, question, right, is to also kind of consider why this book was written in the first place. And I think this connects to my earlier point about what kind of motivated me to write it, and then I can get into the what I regard as the gist of the argument. And I guess the main motivation for writing the book, other than the things I've already described, was to try to make sense of this peculiar phenomenon where you had both many established Marxist scholars, sometimes they're referred to, believe it or not, as Marxologists, you know, as if you get a biologist to study Marx or Marxian theory, um, as well as liberal and conservative critics of Marx's social and political thought. And even in the mainstream, this, this weird, uh, peculiar, overlapping consensus, if I can use another political theory concept, between very different and conflicting political philosophies and traditions and ideologies, right? Basically agreeing that Marx's philosophy was uh, philosophically or even principally opposed to the discourse of rights, the rule of law, and to justice writ large. For a host of different reasons, they have their different reasons. And this was something that was shared by erudite uh, scholars of Marxism like Lechek uh, Kolakowski, uh, both when he was more pro-Marxism and then when he became a virulent critic of Marxism, as well as by you know those who identified as Marxist, very important Soviet legal philosopher Yevgeny Pashukhanis, who has been influential in the West, also agreed to this post-legal uh, view uh, or interpretation of Marx. And then you have, you know, more academic scholarly treatments of Marx that basically argue the same thing. There is no way that you can make Marx's social and political th uh, thought compatible with a commitment and support for individual rights, rights discourse as a whole, justice and legality. And that kind of intrigued me. How is it that you get consensus across such disparate traditions points of view that never agree on anything else. And that bothered me in a way. It got me curious. And I started thinking about whether or not this is actually the case. And so this is something we tend to do in the history of political thought. We look at texts and there are different ways of approaching the text. Some uh, theorists look at the political context in which these texts were written. Others study text line by line. Others still uh, try to read between the lines. 
because not every uh, author likes to explicitly write what they are arguing in favor under very you know difficult political circumstances. I tried to combine a little bit of all because Marx was above all a revolutionary and not simply a philosopher. And so that meant returning to um, texts that he wrote, particularly as a journalist, when the question of rights, legality, and uh, justice were at stake. So in particular, the book focuses on the 1848 revolutions, right, that spread across short, uh, Central Europe, uh, mostly. Uh, they were quite short-lived, but these were predominantly bourgeois, we could say, liberal revolutions for an expansion of rights and democracy. They were eventually crushed and, you know, the kind of atmosphere of reaction and counter-revolution, if you want to use that kind of language, took hold. And that basically stalled uh, liberal reforms across Europe, led to the consolidation of more repressive regimes. And Marx, the only revolution he took part in was that revolution. And those, I should say, those revolutions were liberal revolutions, not communist or socialist revolutions. And the question of where he stood during this time is very revealing because he actually argues for allying with the liberal bourgeoisie in the Germanies because Germany wasn't unified at the time, right? Precisely because it will expand the horizon of rights, which will then be important for the growing working class to come to a position of political power. So somehow, during a period of revolutionary transformation, Marx is actually very pro-rights. Why is that the case? Well, you know, I try to go into that in the book and to argue that actually for him, every form of production, right, gives rise to certain legal relations that people can uh, enjoy and should be able to enjoy, not without a struggle, according to, to Marx. So it's not by means the case, it's by no means the case, that uh, his political theory, political philosophy, is incompatible or opposed to the discourse of rights. So that was, I suppose, the, the first step. And then the gist of the argument is that the conventional interpretation that argues that Marx's political theory is incompatible with the regime of rights either has to ignore or sidestep those instances, very important ones, like a revolutionary situation, where he actually speaks wholeheartedly in defense of political rights and liberties, what we would call civil liberties, you know, particularly those concerning, right, broadening uh, political freedoms, which is, of course, the very opposite of what happened in state socialist regimes, which tried to curtail them, dismiss them merely as bourgeois, right? And there was a, a, the famous uh, school, Marxist school, called the Praxis School in the former Yugoslavia. And I quite liked an article dealing with that fundament, what was it called? Foundations of Human Rights or Fundamental Foundations of Human Rights, uh, written by members. It's like a pamphlet written by members of that school. And they put it quite nicely that if these were merely formal bourgeois rights, right, why do these regimes uh, feel so uncomfortable granting uh, these rights in practice, not just form, uh, to their citizens if they're merely formal and uh, empty? So that's something that I think can be extended uh, not only to critics of, of Marx and Marxism who make these claims, but also to some of the most, uh, how shall I say, uh, zealous supporters of Marx and Marxism who insist that he was hostile to the discourse of rights. 
Well, how do you account for those instances when he comes out in favor of freedom of expression, assembly, association, all those things that were compromised in very disastrous ways in the societies that claimed uh, Marx as their you know, inspiration? Um, so the gist of the argument is that it is a fundamental mistake textually to argue uh, that Marx uh, was opposed to uh, what we would call civil liberties, uh, rule of law, you could be critical of their limitations, right? Without necessarily arguing that they should be abolished and forcefully negated in search for some kind of utopia, which is more freedom enabling. In fact, I argue that for Marx, the granting of these rights through struggle, right? Because rights don't fall from the sky free of charge, right? Right. Uh, that is a precondition to any kind of fuller conception of human freedom and emancipation. It has to be a precondition. It's necessary, but insufficient. Whereas what I think happened in many uh, of the state socialist societies, is, and partly as a consequence of the Cold War and the circumstances where these revolutions took hold, or, you know, as in the place where you, you came from, where they were imposed, Right, is that they didn't actually develop these, uh, you could say, this liberal heritage, and so the pursuit of a more free society, you know, uh, took place under very difficult circumstances that didn't have uh, the heritage of liberal freedoms developed. For example, to a similar extent in England, which also still is very traditional in many respects, uh, as far as the monarchy is concerned. But that. Legacy, that heritage is important, and it's important for Marx too, which is why he regarded the Napoleonic Code, for example, as great progress, which is why he thought in the famous uh, essay on the Jewish question that the granting of equal uh, civil and political rep uh, rights represents great progress. It's not the final story, because then human freedom would be limited and defective, but it is the basis for any fuller story about uh, human freedom. So I guess, you know, this is kind of the gist of the argument, and it goes against the grain of these prevailing conventional interpretations, right, for various reasons that either portray Marx as an enemy of, uh, of rights uh, or as an enemy for right, of rights precisely because they're empty and are used as deceptive tools by the elite, by the powerful in society to keep down the downtrodden and the uh, oppressed. Would would you say would you say that this is your the main contribution of your book to our understanding of Marx and his take on liberalism? I think so. I think so. And if I can elaborate on that, you know, liberalism itself is an internally diverse uh, ism, right? An internally diverse political uh, philosophy. So it has different camps. Uh, but one of its virtues, of course, is that it has different variations. And then, if, for example, we say a kind of a progressive uh, egalitarian liberalism that's really interested or invested in securing the freedom and equality of all individuals, right? Then Marx can be conceived as a constructive critic, right? So you have you have you can have a friend, but you can also have Marx as the enemy. And I suggest that Marx is more of a friend, a critical friend, which is the best kind of friend to have, right? Not a dishonest and uncritical friend. Right to make liberalism stronger in light of the in light of the challenges that it's experiencing today, because sure, liberalism is still very much the dominant political ideology in the world globally. I would argue it's under a lot of attack these days. And then the real question is, how is it going to defend itself? And I argue that we can learn a few things about Marx about what do you do when the question of rights 
and legality is at stake. In this case, Marx presents himself as a, uh, you could say, a, a constructive critic friend rather than an enemy of liberalism. So that, in broad, broad strokes, uh, that would be, you know, the gist of the contribution. And if it changes, and if it challenges the conventional uh, interpretation of Marx as an enemy of uh, rights, uh, then that would be already, I think, in my view, a major uh, contribution. No doubt, because uh, you know, Marx's reception has been uh, um, colored and shaped by the Cold War. In the Soviet Union, had a lot to do with which works were translated, which were made available, and to what uses they were deployed. And in the West, and particularly in, in North America, the U.S., right? It, there was a, there was a lot of investment in trying to present Marx as an enemy of liberty. We no longer need to do that, right? For a host of different reasons, and that's why I think there's another opening there to kind of look back at text that we thought we had, you know, settled. Uh, on and to revisit them in a new light, and that same applies for different thinkers. Marx being one example. Well said. What, if anything, does the book tell us about the historical past? Well, on the uh, on the question of kind of the the thinker, right, as a kind of representative of the historical past, it tells us that we have to be a lot more careful, right, when we're trying to make sense of the thinker and their respective contributions by trying our best to separate ourselves from what we may call prevailing prejudices, right? Because we live in a particular world with dominant ideas and ideologies. But one of the great things about political theory, in my view, is that some of these ideas that are passed on from generation to generation, these ideas uh, typically right, uh, are transhistorical. They have transhistorical insights and values. And of course, they should never be limited to Western political philosophies because th that only represents one kind of very important trajectory. There are other trajectories as well. But it's, it tells us that there is a different history to, to Marx, for example, that hasn't been uh, sufficiently discussed. So that's just with respect to the thinker. The same, I think, would apply to the history of socialism. Right? So I started with that by talking about this idea that I borrowed from Lozardo called the counter-history, you know, uh, with the warts and all. And the warts were quite extensive, right, in actually existing socialism, as with, in a different sense, with liberalism, uh, you know, bound up with colonialism and with Christianity. And we can name a, a number of other ideologies and, uh, you know, isms. But the idea there is that socialism has this history, and this history thus far has unfortunately been bound up with a series of unfreedoms, right, and repressions. And I think those um, who take seriously socialist ideals or convictions, right, have to, as I've said before, confront this history very seriously because, the, you know, to use a quote from Marx, the weight of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the minds of the living. He was a wonderful writer, um, there are a few writers, philosophers that you, you read and you really like precisely because of how imaginative they were. Friedrich Nietzsche is another <laughs> example, very different uh, political or orientations. But basically the idea here is that you can imagine a different future for socialism, right? That is not uh, colored by that uh, counter history. And then, you know, it provides us with another way of, of thinking about the future. Right by also looking and learning uh, at the past, and I think you know by revisiting the past, we we also revisit our present, 
in our relationship to the past as well as to to the future. So in a sense, it's, it, it pertains to uh, both the how we approach the thinker, in this case Marx, but also the regimes and the forms of society uh, that he inspired and may well inspire in the future. Well said, because uh, uh, my next question is, what does the book tell us about the present and foreseeable future? And I think you you partly already answered it. So actually, you you are presenting us with uh, with another view on Marx that could be instrumentalized by left leaning people after the horrible experience we had with the Iron Curtain. This this is your message? Partly. It's part part of the message, uh, certainly. The other part is also, you know, not in some distant future where it may or may not take hold. You know, it could be a socialist future. Uh, capitalism, right, has had a very long uh, trajectory, but so did feudalism and other forms of uh, political economic arrangements that seemed, you know, immutable, and unchanging and natural, right? We we could, I suppose, to the slave owners, right? The slavery and mastery seemed natural and, you know, eternal. Uh, in retrospect, it wasn't, right? And the same may be said about capitalism, especially given what we're seeing around the world today. Uh, but I think when I think to the future, I think more immediate future, and that is the present, right? And what is the present? The present uh, has uh, shown to us the resurgence of various far-right movements. Sometimes people like to refer to these movements as uh, right-wing populist. I myself, I think populism is very imprecise conception. It, it provides, generates more problems than solutions. But the idea that liberalism is under serious attack right now, I think has to be taken seriously. And here I think this particular work is also helpful because if we think about you know the question of rights under assault, right, during, uh, uh, during context where we experience greater repression, right, and the resurgence of movements that like to scale back the horizon of rights, right, for various uh, segments of the population, this is a great opportunity to ask what does liberalism need to do in order to, one, survive and to improve so it doesn't get, you know, defeated by its opponents. Historically, right, if we follow, you know, Francis Fukuyama's uh, thesis, the end of history, there were two opponents in the 20th century. Uh, one of them was defeated in part, in large part, with the support of the of the Red Army, right? Uh, but then it too was defeated, right, by liberalism in 1989 and immediately thereafter. Now, today, you don't have, you know, uh, the Iron Curtain, you have other things, right, and other opponents. And so I think it's a renewed opportunity to think about what liberalism needs to do uh, from a more critical perspective in order to respond adequately to its challenges. And the challenges aren't from the far left. They're actually from the far right, arguably. Uh, and so I actually think that Marx, in this case, can be very helpful in, when it comes to our immediate future because he deals with the question of what does one do if one wants to preserve democracy uh, and preserve, you know, hard-fought for rights and civil liberties. And his claim is that you have to extend the power of the legislature and try your best to curtail and constrain the power of the executive. 
what we've been seeing increasingly, and I think you may agree with this, as a as a scholar of comparative politics and beyond, right, is this kind of explosion of executive power, right, and strong men, especially strong men, type of figures that want to undermine, right, the um, you know not only people's rights and civil liberties, but also to consolidate greater and greater power. And so for Marx, the idea is to help expand the terrain of the democratic, not to constrain it, as a way of checking the executive power, right? We can get into that, of course, but I think in the more immediate future, which is our present, that's what Marx has to teach liberals. In other words, liberals should be better liberals if they want to you know, protect liberalism from its excesses, right, and its challengers, I would argue. So, um, and now this is a question that just, uh, you know, it uh, occurred to me right now. You are rediscovering a line of thought, a Marxist line of thought that was somehow ignored or neglected by the Marxist people who implemented Marxism in practice in Central and Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. And I, as a, as a person coming from that uh, region, I just um, think that it's such a pity that, that this uh, line of thought, this Marx that you rediscovered, um, was lost in that discussion because my life and your life and so many lives in Eastern Europe would have been very different if those um, actually existing uh, um, Marxist, Leninist, uh, socialist, communist regimes would have thought about justice, legality and rights in a more... Um, in, a, in a manner that was respecting uh, individual rights uh, um, more fully. No, I think that's a very important observation. And, you know, t- to their credit, there were many dissident uh, uh, intellectuals, right, whose starting point was, in fact, Marx. But you see, in, in history, right, and this is something you can actually get in Marx's thought, that history is written by the victors. Now, the victors in this particular case may be those who identify as Marxists. But there were many other Marxists, they were considered dissident Marxists, who were pointing this out. They did so mostly, uh, you know, with reference to Marx's humanistic, what are called his formative or early humanistic writings, like the economic uh, and philosophic manuscripts of 1844, where he talks about, uh, you know, alienation, what it's like to experience work under capitalism. But he also talks about something else called crude, quote unquote, crude communism, barracks communism, which he argues critically, he tries to level uh, all differences between people, but hasn't even arrived at civilization. It wants to deny personality. So you can already find in those works that they try to underemphasize an early anticipatory critique of uh, state socialist societies. Because Marx, you know, whatever one makes of him, was actually a very uh, celebratory and gave a lot of kudos to the bourgeoisie and to capitalism for really developing and expanding the realm of human potential and needs. Obviously, it then leads to a whole host of 
other problems, but it's because of these humanistic principles, right, that he was committed to something better than capitalism. But yes, uh, the thing is, the history is written by the victors, and the reception of Marx uh, in the Soviet Union, to use, uh, you know, a Western Marxist by the name of Herbert Marcuse, who was, of course, uh, one of the representatives of the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, he, he wrote a book, I think it's called Soviet Marxism, where he says the great irony about uh, the reception of Marx in the Soviet Union, let alone you know other parts of Eastern Europe where it was imposed, is that it became conservative. Marxism is revolutionary, and you get that almost in every page, including in Capital. Right? Its teachings are revolutionary. It's not meant to conserve a repressive, you know, status. It also looks forward to the withering away of the repressive state, right? So he says the irony is that, Marcuse says that the irony is it became a conservative doctrine, whereas in its inception and in its consolidation, theoretically, I mean, it was always revolutionary. So how did this happen? Part of the explanation is this reception that all the archives, right, came into the control of those who were then affiliated with the Communist Party. Those intellectuals are actually quite uh, liberal and open-minded, but they you have to understand they were encountering great pressure. So I have in mind people like uh, Rizanov and Rubin. These are people who are actually studied in the West now. All of them were purged and killed when what they were discovering, right, um, did not uh, align well with the party ideology, which emphasized expedience, right? If you want to push for forced collectivization, you're not going to emphasize, you know, freedom of expression, assembly, and association. Not to trivialize, you know, uh, those crimes. But the the point the point is that uh, part of my current research, maybe I'm anticipating ahead of time, actually goes back to the early years of the Russian Revolution, and to try to make sense of how they were um, navigating when thinking about the future of law right, or socialist legality. And it's really interesting to see that it wasn't fixed in the beginning. There were wide-ranging debates, most of them critical of legality, as bourgeois legality and so on, but not entirely, not universally. It's in the 1930s when any kind of debate is no longer possible. So I have to say that I'm even open-minded about the Soviet experiment, right, that it wasn't something that was colored in stone from the outset. It wasn't just a matter of path dependency. And that, too, could have had a different history. You're absolutely right. But I just don't want to take away from the fact that there were dissident intellectuals like the Praxis School in the former Yugoslavia, the Budapest School, including uh, people like uh, Agnes Heller, for example, uh, and other uh, intellectuals. Some of them studied under, you know, uh, Georgi Lukács, right, who was a Marxist in both in theory and in practice. And so it's important not to, you know, drown out their voices, even if they were in the minority. This is what Kolokovsky in his pre-anti-Marxist times called, you know, uh, how shall I say, being cautious uh, about the blackmail of the single alternative. That there's only one way that history, right, could have, uh, that history could have taken. This is fascinating, um, but let's go back to the book, yeah? If you were asked to republish uh, this book, um, to revisit it, what would you change about it, if anything? I think, and this is something that has come to me largely uh, as a consequence of the book's reception, one thing I would certainly have done and should have done is to make it a lot more accessible 
to a general readership because I didn't realize just how much, you know, how many people, I should say, are interested, members of the public, you could say ed- educated members of the public, who are not political theorists, who are invested in these debates today, who have a general interest in thinking about Marx in ways that, you know, people haven't thought about before. Also, the future and the past of socialism and also of liberalism. So I would certainly make it a lot more, you know, uh, accessible and friendly to a broader readership. And the, the, the teaching has come from the book being reviewed in, you know, public-facing left-wing journals like Jacobin, right, uh, where, you know, there's a, an ongoing debate on the left and the radical left in terms of where the radical left should stand with respect to the question of rights in any kind of post-capitalist society. I should have been a lot more, you know, invested in making it more um, accessible to a broader readership because it's relevant. And secondly, this is something that I learned from my mentors and also some other readers is it would have been better to uh, present the book not as an advocacy of Marx, right, but being as a judge, you know, to try to be more impartial. But I felt as though because of these various, you know, peculiar uh, overlapping interpretations that I needed to defend Marx because Marx couldn't defend himself. But I should have taken more the position of what Immanuel Kant would call an impartial spectator, right, who, you know, just surveys things. And I do that to a certain extent in the book by returning to text and kind of drawing out certain conclusions. But there was more of a sense that here I'm advocating, right, I'm like the lawyer, rather than, uh, you know, or the defense lawyer, I should say, rather than the judge who wants to be as impartial as possible. And of course, it's not always possible to be impartial when we're discussing such controversial figures uh, and themes. So yes, those would be two things I think that I would have definitely done differently, had done differently if I were given the choice, maybe in another edition (laughs) or translation. Uh, Igor, uh, now a personal question. Uh, did you, did your, did your views about Marx change while you were researching and writing about his take on liberalism, or um, how to say you, you already had some, you know ideas about uh, his position and uh, uh, your research just confirmed uh, uh, those ideas. Uh, were, did, did Marx, did, did this, did this um, um, close encounter, third degree encounter with uh, this monumental th- uh, thinker who was so influential uh, over countries, over, over political parties, over debates, um, did did it change you? That's a big existentialist question, isn't it? I, I suppose the one thing I haven't said is there's a slight prehistory uh, before the dissertation, right? That I don't always think of. I did include this in the acknowledgement section. You know, we have to write these, well, I chose to write an acknowledgement. You don't have to, but maybe there's an unwritten rule that you should, because no man and woman are an island onto themselves. You rely on the support of your colleagues, your peers, and your mentors. But there I did note uh, this funny, uh, curious uh, prehistory, where in a grade 12 economics uh, course, this is in in high school, in, in Canon, Toronto, to be exact, 
we were asked to compare and contrast two thinkers, two economic thinkers, foundational thinkers. And you could sort of imagine who they were. One of them was Adam Smith, and the second one was Karl Marx, in terms of who provides the more convincing account. And ironically, you know, my father, I returned from school at the time. My father said, what's been going on? I'm like, ah, I'm preparing to write this essay comparing and contrasting uh, Smith and Marx. And he said, well, so what are you going to argue? Oh, my God, Marx has so much blood on his hands from what I gathered that it just doesn't make sense to try and defend, defend him. And he said, and I think I, 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 my father deserves credit for this. I mean, he was also a product of that society and its uh, public ideology. He said, have you actually read Marx? And I said, no, I have not. Uh, and, you know, the first thing that I read was the Communist Manifesto. And at least in its critical sections, you know, it made a lot of sense to me, given the inequalities that I was witnessing. And it it just, it, it seemed to be the very opposite of what I was, you know, taught, right? And so then I ended up arguing, this was in the grade 12 high school uh, economics course, that actually Marx is the one who offered the convincing, uh, you know, account rather than Adam Smith. And that, I think there it really changed, you know, the way I would approach Marx more in a more open-minded fashion. But it wasn't until the dissertation and actually going through the process of returning to those texts, not as one does in high school by reading the Communist Manifesto, which was a political pamphlet, but Marx's kind of work cumulatively as a whole, that it wasn't simply a case of, you know, reaffirming what I took to be the truth. Maybe it did a little bit. But it was the kind of truth that I think needed to be defended, needed to be resurrected uh, more than ever. And, uh, you know, at the time when the professor that I mentioned uh, from the law school uh, was teaching Hegel, said, don't you want to have rights? I, I wanted to say, yes, of course, and there's no inconsistency there. But that was more of a kind of a dogmatic, knee-jerk reaction. That's what one would desire. We would call that wishful thinking without any kind of argumentative support or evidence. But it's going through, you know, the archives, learning who Marx was, not as some kind of, you know, saint, but as a human being, flawed, warts and all, right? That you come to appreciate, you know, what he stood for and what he tried to achieve, notwithstanding his flaws and limitations. And I think that was kind of the main learning point. So I share that prehistory before the dissertation because it's striking how much and the extent to which, you know, prevailing dominant ideas shape who we are. And if we don't take, you know, the things we read critically, then we can be taken advantage of and we can believe things that aren't actually rooted, you know, in the texts that, you know, are written by some of these authors. So I think that, you know, my father really challenged me counterintuitively, although he, he's not a particular fan of Marx, uh, you know. You know, there is that uh, intellectual openness to, you know, actually read and to inform oneself, which, you know, was used to be the motto of the Enlightenment, to have the courage to think for yourself. How do you do that, you know, if you don't read and inform yourself about the world around you, the past, the, the present, and who knows, maybe even the future? You told us um, about your future plans, but can we go back to them and can we expand um, you want to continue your research on Marx, but um, um, do you see a book uh, in the works or um, how will you go about it? And what exactly in Marx are you most interested in now? 
Yeah, no, Marx is always, I think, going to be a part of me as as many other, you know, important political theories. So there's a way in which you can't fully, you know, once you kind of uh, are immersed in the thing, you can't fully emancipate yourself from that thinker. But what I do like about his approach is the methodology, kind of the critical orientation towards major thinkers and theories, right? To put them in political context. And for me, what's been really interesting is kind of thinking about the future of legality uh, in the present, right? And the challenges that legality faces and kind of the protection of rights in particular. And what has often been called in recent years, the hauling out of democracy. I'm really worried about that. And I think it could be really helpful, especially when it comes to you know, current issues in legal theory and philosophy. What does it mean when the rule of law is under attack? And certain established assumptions about capitalism always being conducive to the protection of rights, something that, you know, I'm very skeptical about. And I think this is being borne out, unfortunately, in contemporary politics, that you can have a very efficient uh, uh, market-oriented society that doesn't put a lot of uh, value in the protection of rights. In fact, it's happy to undermine them when it means that you could be more productive, right? And that's something I worry about. And so I'm interested in, you know, what has now been called the law and political economy movement, right? And LPE, as it's called. Uh, and I'm interested in the intersection of LPE and what we could call, you know, political philosophy, the relationship be- between justice in the broad sense and uh, LPE, law and political economy uh, scholarship. What does it mean when the world is becoming more and more unequal for the protection of rights? Not just socioeconomic rights, but even those, you know, first order, first wave, uh, you know, liberal legal rights, right? What is the connection between them? And I think it's a very timely project to think about these questions now because we see that legality and rights are under uh, attack. And again, if one is interested in broadening, right, the horizon of justice or of rights, one has to take that really seriously because if you don't even have the formal rights, right, you don't have the foundation on which to stand when you're up against the wall, uh, figuratively or literally, right? So I think that's very important. And um, I also have this joint translation project with Raphael Kachaturian and this deals in part with the, something that I mentioned in passing on returning to kind of the debates that existed uh, after the Russian Revolution about the future of law in a very different social political context where it wasn't, nothing was certain, right? Everything was possible, even futurism, right? Which was quite dominant for a short period of time in any case, you know, women's rights, things that, you know, were never up for grabs or up for grabs. And it's it's that period from 1917 up to 1931, in our case, that we're translating this uh, volume to make available for English uh, readers, right, what these debates entailed, right, and for them to make judgments on their own, you know, uh, about that historical period and what it means for those who, you know, want to experiment with alternatives to capitalism, right? So that would be another contribution, more a labor of love, but labor nonetheless, Right to make uh, these, uh, you know, buried thinkers, and most of them were killed, as I said before, purged, accessible to readers who would not otherwise encounter them. So, can we have some uh, uh, um, examples of the of the thinkers you will uh, translate? Uh, which which names? 
So one of one of them who's best known in in the West is of course uh, Evgeny Pashukhanis, who was consumed uh, by uh, Stalinism. Uh, although he was actually very instrumental in teaching the law, and there's a story I can get into in terms of how they changed the curriculum in the Moscow at the Juridical Institute after they purged him, because he was the thinker, the thinker, the legal thinker in the so in the, what became the Soviet Union, right? When it came to questions of law, what the future of law, and he put forward what's called the commodity exchange theory of law, that where you have commodity exchange, you have law. When you have a system that's no longer guided by commodity exchange, law withers away, and so do rights. And unfortunately, you know, not only did his rights wither away, but so did his life under, you know, uh, Stalin and another uh, thinker that we don't look into. He was more of an apparatchik, uh, you know, using law, uh, for the purposes of of uh, consolidating terror, his name, of course, is Andrei Vyshinsky, who, who also had a place in the United Nations, uh, but was also the uh, procurator uh, of the Soviet Union. We we don't talk a lot about him, but those thinkers, other than uh, Pashukhanis, is quite known. We're going to focus on writings that weren't published, that weren't translated, because he wrote a lot. Same with Stuchka. Uh, also, uh, uh, you know, quite influential. But people like Razumovsky, Staroselsky, I think was the was the surname, and a number of other uh, thinkers, Adoratsky, uh, a, a number of other thinkers that you know haven't been uh, translated. And we know now, ironically, that there is demand for this, not only by those who identify as Marxists, by the quote-unquote Western liberal legal theorists. Right, uh, whether it's uh, to know thine enemy or just an intellectual uh, curiosity. So we have several different thinkers that we're trying to make accessible, and this is a pioneering effort because there have been short excerpts that have been, uh, you know, translated. Some of them can be seen in my <laughs> in my one of my bookshelves. That's how limited the exposure is. So in that sense, you know, uh, it's also an opportunity uh, to make uh, these thinkers. Um, more uh, more accessible. Another one comes to mind is Ankarov. So most, uh, let alone Russian uh, readers, will not know these figures because they've been purged and you know excised from historical memory. But certainly English readers uh, uh, won't uh, have heard them, of them, other than of course Pashukhanis and Stuchka. And what's also fascinating is it's given me an opportunity to connect with some of my mentors, but also previous translators and editors who are writing in a very different. A generation when the Soviet Union was still very much intact. So, you know, this gives us an opportunity to present these thinkers on their own terms, to speak for themselves, rather than having the Cold War kind of inflect and also color the content of their theories and of their contributions. We've been freed from that, at least temporarily. Jury's still out, given geopolitical events. But I think uh, that's also important to kind of broaden people's horizons. I can wish you only um, uh, success in uh, in these uh, future plans of yours. Uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Igor, for um, uh, the talk. Our guest today at New Books Network was Dr. Igor Shoikek-Brod, the author of Revisiting Marxist Critique of Liberalism, Rethinking Justice, Legality and Rights, a book published by Paul Grave Macmillan in 2019. Thank you again, and hope we'll talk again soon. 
goodbye. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me.